You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1956th edition of St Edson's News Talk for the 23rd of November 2023. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller. The producer is Roger Morris and your readers are Christian Jenner and Jill Gain. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence. And first, we have a message from the editor of this week's edition of News Talk. And she says, The papers were full of photos of Armistice Day and Remembrance Day commemoration ceremonies. There were also way too many photos and articles for and about Christmas food. I am afraid I could not bring myself to try and include any such items just yet. There is opinion aplenty, but no long reads. I make no apology for the last two articles you will hear. One concerns the Light Upper Life events being hosted across our region by St Nicholas Hospice. The second is for at least one News Talk listener who would appreciate updates on Berry Football Club, an edited review of a match played on the 14th of November. And finally... When I was trawling through the pages of the BFP, it was noticeable that there were several quasi-adverts of different sizes imploring us to recycle this newspaper. So I'm wishing you happy recycling and looking forward to recycling your memory stick very soon. Today we have only one headline. A remarkable find. Rare temple discovered. Volunteers in Rendlesham have unearthed a major temple believed to date from the time of the East Anglian kings. Excavations at the site near Sutton Hoo uncovered a vast royal compound which uses part of a wider settlement complex unique in the archaeology of 5th to 8th century England. Suffolk County Councillor Melanie Vigo de Galadoro said, This year's findings round off three seasons of fieldwork which confirm the international significance of Rendlesham's archaeology and its fundamental importance for our knowledge of early England. The discovery was made this summer by Suffolk County Council's Rendlesham Revealed Community Archaeology Project, which is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Last year, the project uncovered the remains of a large timber royal hall, confirming the location as a royal settlement of the East Anglian kings close to Sutton Hoo itself, a world-famous Anglo-Saxon burial site. This year's excavations also uncovered evidence of metalworking associated with royal occupation, including a mould used for casting decorative horse harnesses similar to that known from the burial ground at Sutton Hoo, which was the subject of the Netflix hit film The Dig. The royal compound was found to have been more than twice the size than previously thought at around 15 hectares, which is equivalent to the size of 20 football pitches. The compound would have been part of a wider settlement complex covering of around 50 hectares, which is unique to the archaeology of 5th to 8th century England. 
Professor Christopher Skull of Cardiff University and University College London was the project's principal academic advisor. He said, The results of excavations at Rendlesham speak vividly of the power and wealth of the East Anglian kings and the sophistication of the society they ruled. The possible temple, or cult house, provides rare and remarkable evidence for the practice at a royal site of the pre-Christian beliefs that underpinned early English society. Its distinctive and substantial foundations indicate that one of the buildings, 10 metres long and 5 metres wide, was unusually high and robustly built for its size, so perhaps it was constructed for a special purpose. It is most similar to buildings elsewhere in England that are seen as temples or cult houses, therefore it may have been used for pre-Christian worship by the early kings of the East Angles. This year's breakthrough comes after three years of excavation that has transformed the understanding of the period. Over 200 volunteers from the local community were involved this year, bringing the total number of volunteers to over 600 for the three-year fieldwork programme, including from the Suffolk Family Carers, Suffolk Mind and local primary school children from Rendlesham, Ike and Wickham Market. And now we have three local news tidbits from Bury St Edmunds. Suffolk Libraries has welcomed its first environmentalist-in-residence, Claire Sams. Claire will lead workshops, informative sessions and engage with the community in meaningful conversations about sustainability, conservation and the urgent need to protect the environment. Her new role, which is until April 2024, will give people access to an expert to help them make eco-friendly choices and contribute to a greener future. Meanwhile, over on Angel Hill in Bury St Edmunds, Cards for Good Causes pop-up shop has returned. The charity has opened in Olivia Ben at number 4 Angel Hill and features greeting cards, advent calendars and gifts, with the funds going to charities of the customer's choice. Cherry Whiteside, CEO at Cards for Good Causes, said, We are delighted to have opened our doors again this year, all thanks to the support of the Bury St Edmunds community. Refurbishment and repair works at Bury St Edmunds Railway Station could be in the pipeline if plans win approval. West Suffolk Council planners are considering the application by Abellio Greater Anglia for listed building consent to refurbish and repair the northern elevation turret on Platform 2 and associated platform level room. It is part of a sustained programme to improve the Grade 2 listed station. News from Stowmarket Temporary buildings will be used as classrooms at a school that has been affected by the discovery of a lightweight form of concrete known as rack. The start of the school year has been disrupted at Stow Upland High School near Stowmarket after reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, rack, was found leading to the closure of 17 learning spaces. The John Milton Academy Trust, of which the school is part, said work was progressing on preparing temporary classrooms. Meanwhile, students remained in face-to-face -face learning in school. The discovery of RAC has also meant sixth form science students are using facilities at Thurston Community College on a limited basis in the near future to complete their practical work. A spokesperson for the John Milton Academy Trust said, 
The Trust has made huge efforts to limit any disruption to pupils and maintain the highest level of learning after rack concrete was discovered at Stowe Upland High School in early September, including a quantity found in the school's science labs. Concerns over grass cutting in West Suffolk are being addressed as a formal review moves forward. The Overview and Scrutiny Committee of West Suffolk Council has met to debate a review of its grounds maintenance as concerns over grass cutting in the district mount. Currently, the council is responsible for over 500 hectares of land and despite carrying out a three-weekly cycle across 308 hectares, many public spaces continue to see out-of-control grass. The overgrowth has been in part due to an increased area of council responsibility, increased demand for work including shrub and hedge maintenance, a backlog of requests, costs of equipment, extreme warm and wet weather and staffing challenges. Councillor Ian Shipp, Cabinet Member for Leisure, backed by a cross-party group, took the responsibility of undertaking this review. He said there was a balance to be had between encouraging biodiversity and maintaining neat and tidy sites. Councillorship added, it is a complicated picture of who does what and where when it comes to grass cutting. I hope the outcome of this review will help us achieve that balance of looking after our environment but also making sure areas are kept tidy. As part of the review, the Council will also be looking at the use of weed treatment, which was stopped this year following a decision last December. The review will include sports pitches, highways, parks, cemeteries, beds, planters, baskets, shrubs and winter maintenance. It will suggest a range of options with pros and cons and budget impact. The timescale for the review is such that any costed recommendations can be implemented as part of the 2024-25 budget. The focus of the review and its report will be the cutting of amenity grass throughout the district and any potential changes of this in a wider context. Councillor Ship will be looking to speak to town and parish councils, as well as residents, about which spaces should and should not be left for the environment, and has thanked those who have already weighed in. The final report will be presented on December the 5th. A pioneering artificial intelligence, AI, company, based in Suffolk, is taking part in a new drive to help patients struck by the world's biggest killer, heart disease by personalising their care. Cardiovascular disease, CVD, is the most common cause of death worldwide despite advances in treatment. Now a group of 33 organisations including Orbital Global in Stowmarket have formed a Horizon Europe research consortium which aims to individualise care to heart patients. The four-year I Care for CVD project will involve Novo Nordisk and Maastricht University working together to optimise heart patients' care. Using a single database of more than one million patients, AI experts will look for ways to shift treatment from a one-size-fits-all approach to personalised care. They will look at early diagnosis and classifications 
the urgency of the cases and predicting individuals' responses to treatment. Orbital Global will be harnessing its digital know-how and its own patented AI technology called VertTuri to help automate future treatments and improve prognoses. The platform uses interactive, hyper-realistic avatars to help patients to understand critical healthcare information. Orbital Global Chief Executive Peter Brady said, Cardiovascular diseases affect 620 million people across the world and account for around one in three deaths globally. Despite individual differences in risk factors and symptoms, there is currently a standard treatment plan for all patients. Our vision is to deploy VertTuri within this project to better understand patients' individual needs and configure tailored treatments in real time for them, ultimately saving lives. Writer took Sanctuary in book's character, Joe. Author Helen Fisher was at rock bottom when she started writing her latest published novel. In the acknowledgments to Joe Nothing's Guide to Life, she says she had been on the verge of giving up writing forever and it felt like her life was going wrong in every direction. Helen, 51, who grew up in Bury St Edmunds, had secured a two-book deal with publishers Simon and Schuster. But after her debut, Space Hopper, the novels she wrote were felt to not be right as a follow-up. That is, until she wrote Joe Nothing's Guide to Life, which came out on November the 9th. The book is about the protagonist, Joe Nothing, who, Helen says, is a character all of his own, but was built out of the people she loves. Helen, who has two children, says the creation of Joe is partly to examine the importance of what some might think of as a small and ordinary life. Joe is neurodivergent, and while his mother helps to guide him every day, she's also writing a book full of advice for him. Following her wisdom, and applying it in his own unique way, the next part of Joe's life is more of a surprise than he expects. In the acknowledgments, Helen says during those dark times she took sanctuary in Joe. It sounds dramatic, but sometimes it felt like he was saving me, she says. Helen, who has a background in psychology and ergonomics and worked as a senior evaluator in research at the Royal National Institute of Blind People, describes how she got into writing as a cliché. I had always wanted to write a book. Readers' Letters from a Resident in Ixworth the news report in the Berry Free Press of November the 10th about planning permission for a new housing development in Lakenheath stated that although mature trees would have to be removed, they would be replaced by new. This would appear to protect the biodiversity on the site which the developer is obliged to do. Unfortunately, new planting may take many decades to provide the rich flora, fauna and fungi present on and among the old trees. Mature oaks provide support to over 2,300 species, of which 326 depend on oak for survival, 229 species rarely found on trees other than oak. Although the oak is the most prolific provider of food, shelter and life support, most of the larger trees, 
as well as the understory, all support species unique to themselves. New trees may support some wildlife, but a large number dependent on oak and other species require maturity, with an oak supporting its 2,300 species only when about 400 years plus. If looked after, these trees would outlive the houses built over them. Mature trees have other benefits which immature ones cannot match. They provide shelter from wind, protect growing crops and reduce heat loss from our houses. They reduce high temperatures by expiring moisture and lessen the impact of cold weather. They also absorb pollutants, improving air quality and provide shade to humans, animals and buildings. Many farmers, especially in grain growing areas like East Anglia, are now practising regenerative agriculture, which entails minimum soil disturbance from tilling and chemicals. This is in order to allow the soil to return to a natural productive state containing many plants, invertebrates and fungi, all of which will help retain soil quality and natural fertility. On such methods we should depend for our future. I know we need more housing, especially really affordable or social housing, but they needn't destroy our environment if developed with care. Can we plead with developers to ensure protection of green land and to planners to reject applications which permit such destruction of our natural environment on which we and our children all depend? And this is an opinion piece by Cliff Waterman, who is the leader of West Suffolk Council. I love this time of year, with the spectacle of fallen leaves and all the glorious autumn colour, cosy evenings at home, and the switch to warming foods like thick soups and stews. But it also means winter is coming, and the temperature is dropping outside. And we have already seen storms causing major damage. Unfortunately, there will be some people out there sleeping rough in these conditions. We have heard a lot of noise lately about taking tents and fining homeless people. Personally, I don't want to give such nonsensical ideas any airtime. Suffice to say, no council would want to do this to anyone on a cold winter's day. Instead, let me try to explain what is happening in reality and what we are doing in West Suffolk. It is easy to fall into lazy stereotypes and dehumanise people who sleep rough. How people get to the point of rough sleeping is not easy to explain. Some of it is human tragedy, people unable to cope with things that have happened to them. Some of it is about drink and drugs and the breakdown of relationships that addiction can bring. And some of it, sadly, is about individuals with complex mental health needs, far from a lifestyle choice. Despite more people coming to us having become or at risk of homelessness, we are continuing to reduce the number of people rough sleeping through a mix of investment in support, accommodation and sheer perseverance from our rough sleeper service. Sometimes the people that we do help with support and accommodation may end up back on the streets. That doesn't mean we give up on them. Fortunately, our rough sleeper service, along with other statutory and voluntary sector partners, treats people with compassion and we persevere to try and help them off the streets in order to rebuild their lives. We are releasing interviews on social media of some people who slept rough locally 
and with support from the council and other agencies, have moved on from that situation. I would urge you to listen to their stories before making a judgment. Yes, we can only help people when they are willing to be helped. And in many cases, it's not just helping someone once. For most, it's far more than just sorting them out with a bed and a roof over their head. Some of the biggest successes that our service has had over the past five years are with people who need support for their mental health and other complex needs, including, in some cases, drink and drug addiction. Of course, the number of people rough sleeping is just the tip of the iceberg. The impact of the cost of living crisis has seen an increase in the number of people and families being helped after being threatened with homelessness in West Suffolk. In the six months from the 1st of April to the 30th of September this year, the housing team at West Suffolk Council has intervened to prevent 77 households from becoming homeless, an increase of 63% on the same six months last year. Another 90 households who became homeless have since been rehoused and the council is continuing to work with and help another 148 households, including some who are currently living in temporary or emergency accommodation. From April the 1st, 2022 to the 31st of March, 2023, the council prevented 117 households from becoming homeless, relieved another 220 out of homelessness, and was continuing to work with 263 other households. Suffolk's only cat cafe is the perfect place for a pause. Reporter Alexandra Kupriak and her partner Michael visited Suffolk's only cat cafe on North Street in Sudbury. I have to be honest, as a cat owner, I felt a bit unfair going to a cafe to cuddle other cats while my own baby was waiting for me at home. But what won't I do for you, dear readers? On Sunday, my partner Michael and I visited the newly opened Cat Cafe in Sudbury, the only such establishment in Suffolk. Finnegan's Whiskers is located on North Street with very easy access to free parking. When we were walking towards the cafe, I had already noticed people having a sneak peek through the window, watching cats playing inside. I recommend you book a space in advance on the cafe's website to make sure you will get a table there. The entry fee is £6.50 per person per hour. As soon as we walked in, we were warmly welcomed by a waiter who talked us through the cafe rules and asked us to take our shoes off. The rules are pretty simple. Do not disturb the cats, let them come to you and, which might be tempting, do not bring them any snacks. As we sat at our table, we were immediately greeted by two cats. The cafe provides many toys which you can use to play with them. They seem to genuinely love it. The cafe had nine cats at the time we were there, but the number is constantly changing as the visitors can adopt them. I love the idea that you can spend some time with the cat, get to know its character and apply to take it home. And now we have three stories looking back over different years. And the first one is another one about cats. 50 years ago, 
The Territorial Army were called in 1973 to rescue two tiny kittens from an 80-foot hole in Jacqueline Close, Bury St Edmunds. Found by a poodle named Sasha, the kittens were down the biggest hole in the close, which collapsed several years ago on underground chalk workings. Mark Cordell, 13, of 112 Kings Road, and his friend, Michael Spendy, 13, of 3 Hospital Road, who owned Sasha, saw the kittens when the dog stood at the top of the hole barking. After contacting the local fire station, Mr Bill Hilton, Berry's RSPCA officer, found they had no means of lowering someone into the hole, so he got in touch with the TA. And 25 years ago, dog grabs Prowler. Family pet Bruno knew something was not right when he begged his owners to let him into the back garden in 1998. And moments later, his instinct was proved right when he got hold of a prowler lurking behind the bushes. The alert Alsatian Rottweiler Cross dived out of the back door and chased off the man while his astonished owners looked on. Leslie McKenda said, At first I thought he had hold of next door's cat because he always likes to chase it. But after a few seconds a man got free and jumped over the wall into our neighbour's garden. Mrs McKenda, 26, thought Prowler got into her garden by climbing over their six-foot garden wall. And ten years ago, townspeople were on the lookout for a snake at large. A snake up to five foot long, spotted on the loose in Bury St Edmunds in 2013, was at large for several days. Karen Phillips, nay Frost, stumbled across the reptile, thought to be a boa constrictor, in Sexton's Meadows, while on her way home from Hardwick Heath at around 9.40am. I was literally within inches of it, said Karen, who was walking her dog, Malcolm, at the time. It could have bitten me. I was that close to it. It was a close call, she added. The brown snake was curled up on the side of a footpath, trying to keep warm. Karen yanked Malcolm out of the way and warned passerbys to be careful in case it lashed out. She took a photo on her phone and called the police. The NHS Trust for West Suffolk Hospital has the fourth highest amount of bed blocking in the region as new data reveals the scale of the issue nationally. A report published by the BBC's Shared Data Unit revealed West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust had seen higher rates of bed blocking than trusts which run Ipswich Hospital and Addenbrooke's Hospital. Bed blocking was defined as the patients who no longer met the criteria to be in hospital but were still occupying a bed at midnight. The data, collected between July 1, 2022 to June 30, 2023, revealed this accounted for 56.3% of patients at West Suffolk Figures from the Shared Data Unit highlighted that rates of bed blocking were highest on a Sunday when 72.3% of patients that met the criteria to go home were not able to. However, overall West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust had lower rates of bed blocking than the national average of 57.8%. Responding, Nicola Cottington, Chief Operating Officer, said... We are very sorry to any patient that experiences a delay in going home once they are well enough to. Since the spring, a programme of improvement has taken place to ensure that we discharge patients 
that are well enough to leave our care in a timely manner. This programme has helped us improve our discharge times and will hold us in good stead during the upcoming winter period. The and now we have an opinion piece by Matt Hancock, the MP for West Suffolk, and it's headlined Westminster Life. Horse racing holds a special place in my heart. Growing up in Cheshire, I worked as a teenager at Aintree, and of course, Chester Racecourse was a major part of our culture and local economy, helping me learn from a young age how strongly the horse racing industry impacts people's lives. Since taking on the role of MP for West Suffolk in 2010, I've had the privilege of representing Newmarket in Parliament. This work has deepened my understanding of the challenges facing British horse racing and the best ways to support it. Newmarket, our very own horse racing hub, is hugely important to the local community, but is also respected right around the world. It pumps more than £250 million into the economy, providing jobs for over 7,000 people. And let's not forget the hundreds of thousands of visitors our two racecourses welcome each year. They help our local pubs, restaurants and hotels thrive. In recognising the importance of horse racing and the huge challenges the industry currently faces, it became vital that members of Parliament needed to come together to address these issues. Therefore, I recently tabled a parliamentary debate on the future of horse racing so these important discussions could take place. It was clear from the debate that there is a collective motivation to ensure this sport, with all its history and culture, continues to thrive for generations to come and significantly contribute to the economy. It was fantastic to see such a strong turnout from all sides of the House all of which were passionate about addressing the issues that British horse racing is currently facing. During the debate, I voiced significant concerns regarding the proposed affordability checks by the Gambling Commission. I believe that these checks, while well-intentioned, could have unintended and adverse effects because they risk driving individuals towards unregulated gambling, which is far from the intended outcome. I stressed the need to protect responsible gamblers, especially those who enjoy a little flutter on horse races. We don't want these measures to hurt them. Worryingly, these affordability checks are likely to cause a significant drop in horse racing bets. That drop affects prize money, our status as the global leader in horse racing, and the funds for programmes helping those with gambling problems. The existing policies, I argued, fall short of promoting safer gambling practices and do not contribute adequately to tax revenues or the support of horse racing. However, there are promising signs that our collective campaign against the current proposal for affordability checks is being heard by the decision-makers in the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. You might have seen recently an article written by the Culture Secretary in the Racing Post stating that the government is listening and stressed that any checks will be frictionless and based on data sharing. They will apply only to the very highest spenders and there will be new no requirements on betting at the track or at the local high street betting shop. While this is indeed progress, it is essential to maintain the pressure 
Countless individuals and organisations have tirelessly worked to ensure that the voices and concerns of those within the British horse racing industry are heard, from Members of Parliament to the British Horse Racing Authority and the Jockey Club. This has been a remarkable collective effort. Another topic I highlighted during the debate was the importance of reform reforming the horse racing betting levy. I've been pushing for this change for years. Horse racing and the gambling industry must work together on a solid plan. One crucial reform needed is to ensure bets on offshore races count towards the levy, to prevent people from shifting their betting activities overseas. More money raised through the horse racing betting levy will mean better prize money, greater funding for the advancement or encouragement of veterinary science or veterinary education, and improvements of breeds of horses. It's important to remember, a healthy horse racing industry isn't just about the sport. It's about helping local businesses and boosting our economy. I will keep working with key people in the horse racing industry and ministerial colleagues to keep this industry thriving. And now to another MP, Joe Churchill. An MP has praised the progress the East of England Ambulance Service has made on a new £10 million ambulance hub. Joe Churchill, MP for Bury St Edmunds, joined East of England Ambulance Service CEO Tom Abel and Chair Marunal Sisodia on a visit to the site near Bury St Edmunds, which is due to be completed in summer 2024. The multi-million pound project will create a new station with a dedicated vehicle workshop and make ready areas so that ambulance crews can respond to incidents faster. Mrs Churchill said it was great to be on site at the new Bury Ambulance Station to see how construction is progressing. I know that residents across the area will welcome this £10 million investment in our local ambulance services. And in the week that we have celebrated St Edmund's Day on Monday the 20th of November, a piece by local historian Martin Taylor. The early Catholic Church encouraged people to go on a pilgrimage so that through their suffering and work their sins would be forgiven. Those who could make the arduous journey to the Holy Land did so, and this is how Offa, King of East Anglia, met Edmund, pronouncing him his heir, Offa dying on his return. King Edmund, martyred on November twentieth, 869, would become the first patron saint of England. The following is the first stanza of a poem, supposedly written by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1618, the year he was executed. The passionate man's pilgrimage. Give me my scallop shell of quiet, my staff of faith to walk upon, my scrip of joy, immortal diet, my bottle of salvation, my gown of glory, hope's true gauge, and thus I'll take my pilgrimage. A sculpture relating to pilgrimage is on the Cathedral Change of St James and St Edmund here in Bury St Edmunds. It shows a staff, a satchel for carrying accoutrements and scallop shells, the symbol of St James the Apostle, who is thought to have been washed up, covered in scallop shells on the Atlantic coast, 
22 miles from Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain. It was here, in a magnificent cathedral, to house his body that has become a pilgrimage site. Our cathedral, created in 1914, was so named because Abbot Anselm of Bury St Edmund's Abbey built a new church on the site of an existing church originally dedicated to St Denis. It is said in an apocryphal story that he named the new church St James as he wanted to go on pilgrimage to the resting place of St James but was persuaded not to go by his congregation. Here in Bury, the shrine of St Edmund attracted thousands upon thousands of pilgrims over the 500-plus years of its existence, whilst Our Lady of Walsingham was another important Anglian pilgrimage destination. With the martyrdom of Thomas Becket, Archbishop of Canterbury in 1170, this too would become a destination for pilgrims after he was canonised. With the dissolution of the monasteries in 1535 by Thomas Cromwell, vicar-general, on behalf of Henry VIII, all pilgrim sites would go. Local news, re the Abbey. A multi-million pound lottery bid is being prepared for funds to protect the Abbey ruins in Bury St Edmunds from further erosion and enhance the visitor experience. On Tuesday night, West Suffolk Council's Cabinet agreed to work with St Edmundsbury Cathedral and English Heritage on the National Heritage Lottery funding bid to do more to safeguard the ruins, some of which are in desperate need of work and have had to be fenced off for safety reasons. The money would also be used to improve the surrounding paths, some of which are not currently fully accessible for people with disabilities. And, if successful, the funding bid would also build on the interpretation work that has already taken place at the former Abbey of St Edmund, which was built over a thousand years ago in honour of the martyred former patron saint of England, for people to get a better understanding of the site. Where Suffolk Council agreed to jointly work with the Cathedral and English Heritage on a Stage 1 development feasibility application to the National Heritage Lottery. The Council will also set aside quarter of a million pounds of developer contributions already earmarked for work in the Abbey Gardens towards the improvements. Councillor Ian Shipp, Cabinet Member for Leisure and Culture at West Suffolk Council, said some visitors to the hugely popular site were attracted by their history and heritage, among other things. Within the site's fascinating history, Councillor Shipp said there was the Abbey itself founded just over a thousand years ago in honour of St Edmund, becoming one of the most important sites of international pilgrimage for hundreds of years. The town's part in the very foundation of international freedom and human rights, the Magna Carta, commemorated in stone amongst the ruins. And the burial place of Mary Tudor, sister of Henry VIII and third wife of King Louis VII of France, at St Mary's Church within the site. The Very Reverend Joe Hawes, Dean of St Edmundsbury and Chair of the Project Working Group said, The Cathedral is delighted to be working with all the partner organisations who share our passion for the Abbey of St Edmunds site. The heritage and stories of the Abbey are a sleeping giant just waiting to be awoken for the benefit of our community and so many visitors. 
A successful project will enhance the well-being and lives of us all, as well as attract people from around the country and overseas to engage with the wonderful history of this place. And now we have two new stories from Bury St Edmunds. The pumping station at a Bury St Edmunds flooding hotspot is to be inspected following recent concerns. A Suffolk County Council spokeswoman said during the recent storms the outfall from the Compiègne Way pumping state system into the river was underwater, which affected flow. She added, Suffolk has experienced some of the heaviest rainfall on record and has left river levels very high. A pump engineer will carry out a full inspection of the system to ensure it is working correctly. Due to the recent storms, it is likely the system will have accumulated a lot of dirt and debris, so this will also be cleared. In April, Suffolk Highways confirmed more than a 100 tonnes of silt, which contributed to repeated flooding along the road, had been removed. New pumps were installed to solve the long-running problem. Other measures included an early warning system for silt build-up and an enhanced biannual servicing plan. The low-lying flood-hit stretch alongside the British sugar plant has been subject to a number of flood-related closures in recent years. And the second short story is headlined Woman in Court Over Car Damage. A woman accused of causing more than £25,000 worth of damage to a sports car in Bury St Edmunds is due to appear at Crown Court next month. Sarah Shepherd, 59, is charged with damaging an Aston Martin to the value of £25,638 on April 6th. Shepherd of Rattleston Road, Drinkston, will next appear at Ipswich Crown Court on December 7th. A Bury St Edmunds podiatrist who has tended to thousands of people for almost 30 years is set to retire. Caroline Barwick-Walters, who runs Best Foot Forward, based at Bury Physio in Mainwater Lane, will be stepping down on December the 6th. Caroline is known to generations of people after first setting up in the town in 1995, but she says the time is right to move on to retirement, starting with a two-month trip. I am going to visit seven countries, including Singapore, Fiji, New Zealand, where I am meeting my son, Australia, Hawaii and America, said Caroline, 66, who lives in Morton Hall. I have always loved travel and went backpacking around ten countries for my 60th birthday. The latest trip will involve lots of activities, including whitewater rafting, bungee jumping, a road trip, paragliding, flying, paddleboarding and helicopters. Before I leave, I'm also holding a party for some of the people who have been loyal clients over the years. There will be champagne and cake. It will be amazing and a great way to start my retirement. Caroline trained as a podiatrist after first working as a hotel manager. She then ran practices at several locations in the town, including Abbeygate Street, West Road and Morton Hall. I have got to know so many people through my work and the people of Bury St Edmunds have been incredible, Sir Caroline, who has two grown-up children. They have supported me all along and I would like to say a huge thank you to everyone. I've treated some of them right from the beginning, as well as generations of the same families, from grandparents to grandchildren. 
Currently, I have around three and a half thousand on my books and I will miss them all. Caroline is an expert in all fields of podiatry, but intends to step back from the practice for good. Instead, she wants to concentrate on her hobbies, including crochet, painting, DIY, gardening, walking and concert go walking. And, and here's some news in brief, first from Stowmarket. Food Museum awarded over £350,000. A museum has been awarded over £350,000 to develop both its premises and an activities programme. The Food Museum in Stowmarket has received the sum from the National Lottery Heritage Fund towards its Kitchen Project, which is a multi-year programme of activities and capital works. Over the next 18 months, the venue will appoint an architectural team and develop plans so it can submit a Stage 2 application for further support in early 2025. The museum says it is a significant step in the multi-million pound redevelopment of its 84-acre site. The Kitchen Project will deliver five years of collaborative programmes, activities and exhibitions, creating new volunteering opportunities alongside this. Capital works, including re-erecting the medieval timber-framed Edgar's farmhouse, plus two World War II huts, and works to its grade two-starred medieval barn. And the second story comes from Mildenhall. An initiative for young people is set to launch in Mildenhall with the aim of tackling antisocial behaviour. Teen Chill, which is already run by Abbeycroft Leisure in Newmarket and Brandon, will take place every week at the Jubilee Centre from 7 to 9pm. The venue will be a safe space for young people aged 11 to 16 to get together and socialise, with a number of activities available, including sports, computer games and arts. Sessions are deliberately not structured, with youth workers and volunteers there to provide support. Ian Ship, Milden Hall Mayor, said, This is something that Town Councillor Carolina Lemige and myself felt was missing in terms of the provision for young people in Milden Hall, and we have been pushing to get this for a while. Young girls at Tostock Rainbows welcomed their MP to a session as part of UK Parliament Week. Joe Churchill visited the group, helping Rainbows aged four to seven to learn about Parliament through a themed game of bingo and a spot-the-item board game, including items found in Parliament, while every rainbow had the chance to vote using a ballot card and box. At the end of the session, the votes were counted, with the result for the Rainbow's Christmas party to be held at Berry Bowl, announced by Mrs Churchill. Christy Miles, Rainbow's leader, said, It was a wonderful way to teach young girls how important it is to have their say, how voting works, and also talk about the suffragettes who help women to be able to have a vote. And now we have a few more letters, and the first one starts Highways Department Whereabouts. Saturday morning, and yet again roads in and around Woodbridge were flooded after Friday night's rain. Why aren't the Highways Department or councils responsible for clearing away leaves and weeds from blocked drains, gullies and curbsides, and maintaining the roads in general doing the jobs they are paid for? Where are they? What do they spend their time doing as it certainly isn't apparent? And with so many potholes under flood water, it is impossible to see them. 
What is the Highways Department's or Council's explanations for doing absolutely nothing? And that comes from Penny Moon. Similar vein from P. Brinkley in Ipswich. I'm sorry, but the roads will never be clear of trouble unless the councils get their shovels out and clear away all the debris in the gutters where there are curbstones. Yes, they come and empty the drains, but there is no point if the grit in the gutters isn't cleared first, as the first rain comes and washes all the soil and grit into the drains and we are back to spare one. We have noticed they have emptied the drains on the A12, then we have a heavy downpour that takes the debris in the gutters down the drains and then they come and sweep the road. May I suggest they get to work with a shovel or two, remove the soil and growth from the gutters, sweep them, then clean the drains. I'm sure they will stay clearer for longer. Mark Sutcliffe from Bilderston writes, Rishi Sunak has done the impossible and surprised me. David Cameron dusted down and brought blinking into the light of Downing Street. It's almost as though the Conservatives don't want to be far right anymore, but don't know how. Sunak sacrificed a potential glorious leader, unceremoniously dumping her over the side along with all her bile, and brought back a face from the past. I want a Labour government, for those for the most part are my values. I also don't want any more of this shambling, broken and tainted Conservative Party with its hate-ridden right-wing tail wagging the dog. Internecine warfare is apparently about to break out with blue on blue attacks. Do us a favour, Rishi, and call an election. Then you can have your fight for the Tory soul in opposition and let the adults get on with governing. Conflict in the Middle East. Ian Smith from Berry St Edmunds writes... Graham Goldsmith, Letters of November the 2nd, and Martin Dayton, Letters of November the 16th, have both mentioned the Israel-Palestine conflict in their respective letters. I offer this for contemplation by readers. One of the areas concerning Israel that I believe the media constantly fails to tell the truth about, along with the overwhelming majority of politicians in Britain and Australia, and not to mention the United Nations and its agencies, is the legal right of Israel's domicile in her biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria, as well as Jerusalem. Richard Kemp wrote an article recently for Israeli news site Ynet News, in which he recounted an interview he did some years ago for a veteran Middle East correspondent on TV in the UK. In that interview, Mr Kemp says he challenged what he called the standard falsehoods about the illegal occupation and illegal settlements, etc. Afterwards, Mr Kemp says his interviewer said to him that he privately agreed with what Mr Kemp had been saying. He says he asked the journalist why his reporting always reflected the opposite perspective. Richard says he was told that if he did not, he would be fired. In my view, so much for honesty of our mainstream media. So, what does international law really say about the so-called occupation? Are the settlements legal or not? Richard Kemp challenges the oft-quoted term, occupied Palestinian territories. He poses the question, does this mantra have any legitimacy in international law, or is it simply anti-Israel propaganda? A team of international lawyers gives what I believe is the unequivocal answer in episode 17 of part two of Whose Land, which you will find on YouTube. Well worth a watch in my view. Prepared to be educated about a current 
and all-important topic for our day. John Moore from Woolpit says, Suggestions from an unashamed rat-runner. Like other residents of villages affected by the roadworks on the A14 west of Stowmarket, I have received yet another letter from National Highways deprecating rat-running through local villages. I am an unashamed rat-runner at times of peak traffic because it saves me 10 or 20 minutes. Many others do the same, which reduces delays on the A14. My observation is that most rat-runners treat local roads, our roads, and the residents thereof with respect. I find the highways letter disingenuous in this matter. National highways should pay compensation based on traffic volumes, either to the parish councils of Baton, Tostock, Woolpit and Weatherden, or to individual householders on the routes affected. It defies belief that national highways did not expect us to take to the side roads, and they should have provided for this at the outset. Save money by stopping the fatuous and unnecessary newsletter, PR campaign, self-aggrandizing articles about charitable support, advice on winter driving, and to work from home if possible. And the final letter is headlined, Teasel's story was simply brilliant and it's from Margaret Meller and our editor Claire Meller says no relation. There are times when we buy a publication because of the public the coverage of a particular subject dear to us, be it sport, politics, entertainment. The list is endless. But last week's edition of the Very Free Press, unwittingly to me, held the story of Teasel, the Jack Russell, who has adopted and taken care of six kittens that had been abandoned by their mum, even miraculously feeding them. The accompanying photograph, an unusual story, was worth the cover price of the paper on its own. Brilliant. And our first feature. Blue's woeful defensive display, described as mind-blowing. Berry Football Town assistant manager Paul Musgrove described the defensive frailties on show in their 6-2 home defeat to Basildon United on Tuesday the 14th of November as mind-blowing and said Cole Skews and himself will continue their search for replacements. The Blues duo had gone into back-to-back quick-fire games at the Ram Meadow Stadium looking for a big response from their squad following a run of four straight defeats, three in the pitching in Isthmian League North Division leaving them 15th in the table. A clean sheet and three points in a 3-0 home win against Witham Town on Saturday, with Ed Upson following up two Luke Brown goals that including a penalty inside 23 minutes with an acrobatic third in the 36th minute, had showed promise of turning a corner. And that thought was further strengthened when a high-energy start to Tuesday's game against top four side Basildon saw them rewarded via Josh Curry's downward header from a well-placed Upson corner in the eighth minute. But it was a lead that lasted less than four minutes before Samir Ali's shot from the edge of the area squirmed underneath Charlie Beckwith. It sparked a run of four goals for the visitors inside the next ten minutes before 4-1 became 5-1 just after the half-hour mark when Ali's 30-yard shot flew in off the underside of the crossbar. Berry finally reply ahead of the break through a point-blank finish from Ethan Mayhew after a low Max Morn cross that caused havoc. But it was Basildon, despite the home pressure, who got the only goal of the second half with a misplaced pass from Captain Ollie Fenn 
letting in substitute Michael Barrack to complete the route four minutes from time. It was just individual error after individual error giving the ball away in vital areas of the pitch and then getting in, said Musgrove, of what was a third game this season he has seen the Blues concede five or more in. It was just mind-blowing to see it unravel in front of your eyes, if I'm honest. We're fragile. You need the mental capacity to be able to deal with an error and then tough another 20 to 30 minutes out and try and stick together and it doesn't seem to happen. He felt the players had let their management team down badly. The lads have simply got to take responsibility for that performance. It's nothing Cole or myself can do in terms of our coaching ability or anything like that, he said. Asked if he felt happier with the reaction after the flurry of first-half goals, with Berry pressing for a way back into the game throughout most of the second period, he said, The game just went dead, didn't it? We had a few chances, and again we've got to have 20 chances to score two goals. He added, Saturday was an irrelevance, because if you don't go and build on that, it's an irrelevance. It just shows our incapability to have any consistency. He praised the response of their supporters with nearly 400 turning out on a cold Tuesday night. He said the support was brilliant, so we thank them for their noise and ask them to stay with us. On what happens now with the side 14th in the table ahead of a trip to now 4th place Malden and Tiptree, Musgrove said they will look to add to the recent additions to the squad of youngsters Aaron Okpolokopko and Louis Arnold in a bid to get things right. We've just got to keep working hard as simple as that, he said. It's a time to dig deep and again explore any opportunities we've got to try and change personnel, if I'm honest. As the festive season approaches, St Nicholas Hospice Care will host a series of heartfelt events that will provide an opportunity for people to remember and celebrate the lives of those close to them who have died. The Light Up a Life events will be held in local churches, including Bury St Edmunds, Mildon Hall, Haverhill, Newmarket, Sudbury, Lavenham and Thetford. Also, for the first time in three years, a Light Up a Life event will take place at the charity's Hardwick Lane Hospice site. These gatherings have become a significant source of solace for many individuals, offering a meaningful space for reflection and remembrance. The Reverend Karen, Canon Sharon Connell, the hospice's head of chaplaincy services, said, The festive season is a time of much enjoyment and happiness. But for those coping with grief, whether it is a recent loss or bereavement that happened some time ago, it can be an especially difficult and often sad time. While our events are a chance for reflection as we come together to remember those we miss, they are also an opportunity to remember and celebrate the special times that we had with our loved ones who have died. Everyone is welcome to attend the events with a warm invitation extended to all. With the first events taking place at the end of November, services will continue throughout December, with each featuring a blend of reading, music and prayers. While reservations are not required for most events, attendees should book a place at the Hospices event on Saturday the 17th of December at 3pm, as space will be limited. 
for those unable to attend in person, an online platform allows individuals to share tributes and memories of their loved ones. More information about Light Up a Life, including leaving a tribute online and reservations for the hospice event, can be found at www.stnicholashospicecare.org.uk or by contacting 01284 715566. Although there is no charge for participation, donations to the hospice are gratefully welcomed and any funds raised will support the work the charity does to support those facing dying, death and grief. And the events are on the 26th of November in Sudbury St Gregory's Church, 28th of November in Lavenham at St Peter and St Paul, 7th of December in the United Reformed Church in Thetford, 10th of December at St Mary's Church in Bury, 12th of December at the King's Church in Mildenhall, the 14th of December in the All Saints Church in Newmarket, St Mary's Church Haverhill on the 16th of December, and as we said, finally, at the Hospice on the 17th. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Evansbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Christian, Jill, Roger and Claire, it's goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.